Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Matthew as we finish up our study through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a while now and we come to its conclusion this morning in Matthew 7 verses 24 into verse 29. You'll recall that the Sermon on the Mount began back in in Matthew 5, and we've simply walked through Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and, and looked at Jesus' calling towards his disciples and living the life of the disciple, of the follower of Christ, what it looks like to be one who is his, one who is a believer, one who lives for his glory. You know, life is filled with all sorts of choices. We're confronted with choices every day, and I, I think the the longer we live, the older we get, we look back, and, and some choices, I know I, I'm, I'm to that point now where you start looking back, and some choices you just kind of laugh about, you know? You look back and shake your head and you go, well, that was a good choice, I just didn't realize it, right? Uh, some choices you look back on and you go, what was I thinking, you know? You just look back and shake your head and you go, well, I don't want to go there again, but we learn from them. Well, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has called us to make some serious choices. He's put several choices in front of us. He's called us to live according to what the world calls blessed or what the Lord says is blessed. He calls us to choose between living according to what is said about the law, what is taught about the law, or will we live in light of the true meaning of the law. He's called us to either carry out your religion for man's temporary reward or to live out your true, genuine piety, genuine religion for the greater reward of God. He calls us to consider what we treasure. Will we treasure the things of the world or will we treasure the things of heaven, the things that will not last or the things that will last? He calls us to put away living in anxiety and, and worry and fretting over tomorrow and instead living, trusting in God's provision. And more recently, and a few weeks ago, he called us to choose between entering the wide gate that leads to destruction or the narrow gate that leads to life. And today, as Jesus wraps up his, par- or his, his, his preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses a parable. Many people have described parables as being a, an earthly story with a, a heavenly point or a heavenly Meaning, It's an illustration, an example, a story that Jesus used frequently in his teachings to illustrate a point and to, to make a, a, a point that he wants to, to drive home to those around. And in the parable that we're going to read today in Matthew 7, verse 24, the choice before us is this, is will we be one who is wise or be one who is foolish? Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the 
floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now I want you just to, to notice there in verse 24, there's two important words. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Everyone then, he, he's tying that. That word then is tying us back to verses 21 to 23. We remember last week, if you were here last week, we, we looked at verses 21 to 23 where it's a very difficult saying, a, a hard saying that we have to hear, we need to hear where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And we talked about how many would look and say, well, God, look at my words, look what I said, or look at my deeds, look what I did, and count on that for salvation, rather than counting on Christ for salvation. And so he says here, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, these words of mine, so then is tying us back to what he's just said. These words of mine would tie us back to the entire teaching of Christ here on the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically, it would look back to, to Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. All of the teaching that we've looked at over the last year that, that he has called for. He sits down on the mount and he talks and he teaches the disciples. He teaches his followers. But I would say also more generally, it also refers to all the word of God. All of the Word of God. So all who would hear these words of mine, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, generally the Scriptures, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, the key point, the key truth that we need to take from this parable is the importance of putting Jesus' teachings into practice. That's the, the main driving force of what Christ is looking at. You'll remember that in uh, verse uh, 21, he said that it's not everyone who just says, Lord, Lord. It's not a magic words, but it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So now he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man, right? So the main driving force of this parable is the importance, the, the critical aspect of doing what Christ says, of he, not just hearing, but applying it. He's teaching us that we are to be doers of the word. He's calling us to obey. Now, in the parable, he uses two men, right? He uses two men to, to give his teaching and illustrations. And I think we would be well served to begin by looking at both the similarities and the differences between these two men. So if you just put your finger on the, on the passage there, verse 24, if you start verse uh, 24 down to 27 and look at the similarities first, you see that both hear the words of the Lord. Both men hear the words, right? And then both do what? In response, what do they do? They both build houses, right? So they both hear the words, they both build houses. And what else do they both have in common? They both experience a storm, right? So those are the similarities. Both hear the words, both build a house, both experience a storm. Now, the differences are important for us today. The wise man does what? The wise man obeys what he hears. In contrast, the foolish man does not obey. The wise man builds on the rock, right? In contrast, the foolish man builds on what? On the sand, 
right? And then another difference is that the wise man, what happens with his house? His house weathers the storm. But the house of the foolish man does not weather the storm. Now, when we look at this parable, it's very, very clear that the point of the parable is to highlight not the similarities, but the differences between the two men. That's the point of the parable, is to look at, okay, if, if everyone who hears these words and does them, right, is like a wise man who builds on the rock, then what's the difference between the wise man and the foolish man related to obedience? That's the point that Jesus is driving home in this parable. I think there's three gleanings, three applications, three implications, three takeaways, whatever you want to call them, that we can take away from this parable. There's three gleanings from this parable to two builders. Here's the first one. Says. So he's contrasting again the, the, the one who builds on the rock, the one who obeys, and the one who hears and does not obey. The one who obeys is said to be what? To be wise. The one who disobeys is said to be foolish, right? So he's contrasting the two. And we instantly think about this contrast between the wise and the foolish. It's a contrast that we see frequently in Scripture. As we just read through the Bible, if you're doing your daily readings, you're constantly reminded of the contrast between the wise and the foolish. Particularly, you think about Proverbs, 31 chapters of talking about wisdom, what it looks like to live in wisdom, to walk wisely compared to the way of the fool, to live in foolishness. And so Proverbs certainly highlights that, perhaps the, the center of the teaching on wisdom and foolishness. What I would put before you today is that true wisdom is the right application of knowledge in any given situation. True wisdom is the, the right application of knowledge in any given situation. And so when, when Jesus looks and says that the, the one who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. He's comparing the wise man as the one who rightly applies the teachings of Christ to the situations of life. This text should remind many of you of, of James' words. If you want to flip over just for a moment to James chapter 1. We think about doing the word, doing what we hear. James has much to say about that. James is towards the back of your Bible. So you should flip to the right in your Bible. The book of James. James writes in, in chapter 1. He, he talks about... In verse 18 and 21, he talks about the word of truth, the implanted truth that saves us. So he's talking about the word of God in, in verse 18 and verse 21. And then we pick up in verse 22. This is a, a verse that you've probably heard. It's a verse that we meditated on before the sermon. James write, writes this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This passage is... is doing the same thing that Jesus is doing in Matthew 7. He's calling us to not just hear the Scriptures and then walk away unchanged. He's calling us to hear the Word of the Lord and do the Word of the Lord, to respond in obedience to what God has said to do. 
Now, I want you to, to note here what he says in verse 22. This is important. Do not be deceived, my... Oh, I'm sorry. Verse, <laughs> I'm way up in verse 16 there. Verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. The one who is a hearer only, what does he say that you're doing? You're deceiving yourself. You're not being deceived by other people. You're not being deceived by this or this or that person or that person. You're deceiving yourself. The one who is merely a hearer deceives himself. Now, Jesus' teachings in Matthew 7, they're all warnings to not be deceived. Remember we said as Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, we, we talked about he concludes with four different warnings. Do you remember that? And we've looked at these warnings over the last three, four weeks. Well, all of these warnings are warnings to not be deceived. So in, in chapter 7, of 13 and 14, was the warning to not go the wrong way, right? Don't be deceived in which way is best. Don't be deceived by the wide way that everyone is walking to. Don't be deceived. Go the narrow way. Go through the narrow gate. In verses 15 to 20, he, he teaches us don't be deceived by false teachers. Don't let those who, who come and they, they do these great works and they say these things, they look like sheep, they look like one of you, they're, they're doing the same things that you're doing, they're saying the same things that you're saying, they're taking part in the same things you're taking part in. Don't let them deceive you. You'll know them by your fruit. Don't be deceived by the false teachers. And then last week, in verses 21 to 23, it was a warning to not be deceived by your own words, your own religiosity. To be deceived in yourself that, oh, I'm okay. It's all good. Look what I said. Look what I did. Make sure you're a true believer. And here, in verse 24, 27, and the same thing in James 1, 22, the warning is don't be deceived by merely hearing the word. Don't, don't be deceived by just coming and just sitting and hearing a sermon. Don't be deceived and say, hey, it's all good. It's okay. I know what the Word says. I've heard it. I've heard a lot of sermons. I've read a lot of books. I've sat through a lot of Sunday school lessons. And I know it. So I'll just go about my life and I'll go about and live however I want to live. If that's the case, if you merely come in week in and week out, you just hear the word of the Lord. You hear it preached, and, and maybe you even appreciate it. Maybe you even say, hey, that was a great sermon, Pastor. Thanks. That was really good. But yet you leave, and you never obey what the word says. You never follow Christ. Then you are deceiving yourself. You are deceiving yourself. Was saying, hey, I'm okay. It's all good. But yet, I'm not obeying. I'm not following what the very word I'm okay with, what the very word I've heard says to do. I'm not doing it. You're deceiving yourself. So the first thing, true wisdom is seen in obeying Jesus' teachings. The second thing we can take from Matthew 7 is that our foundation is of utmost importance. Our foundation is of utmost importance importance see that the wisdom of obedience is illustrated here by the one who builds his life on the rock right the wisdom of obedience so jesus says everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like 
right? So that's what he's comparing them to. The one who obeys, the one who hears the word and does the word, who responds in obedience, is like the one who builds his house on the rock. It's the wisdom of obedience. The rock brings stability. The sand brings instability. The rock is secure. The sand is insecure. And so Jesus' main point here, again, is obedience, obeying Jesus' words. It's the main point. So the question then is, well, why is obedience illustrated by one who builds his life on the rock? Have you ever thought about that? Why, why did Jesus use this illustration? Why did he use this parable to illustrate the truth that we are to be doers of the word, that we are to obey what he said? Why would he use an illustration of two builders, one who builds on the rock and one who does not? Well, I would contend to you that the reason for that is that we act on what we truly believe in. We obey what we value. We obey what we believe. And so you may know the teachings of Christ and you may not believe them. You may hear them and be able to recite them but not truly submit to Jesus as Lord and obey him. So, so what that means is to to disobey Jesus is essentially the same thing as you saying that I believe there is someone else who knows better, someone else who has more truth, more understanding, more authority, more right over my life. It is rebellion. To disobey Christ, to disobey the Word of God is rebellion against Him. It's to state that there is something or someone else that you value and you respect and you obey more than Him. So to obey or act upon something is to show what we value and perceive to be true in life. So are you obeying Christ? Are you obeying his word? Or are you obeying something else? Are you living for something else? Are you walking in obedience to your own thinking, your own ideas, different ideas and views of the world? Walking in obedience to Christ is as one who builds upon the rock. Walking in disobedience is as one who builds on the sand. Now, We've talked about a few of these things. But I want to remind you of some of the things that we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of those things that, that would fall under the category of sand. That, that might appear stable, but it will be shifting. So what might we build our lives upon that we might not obey Christ, but instead build our lives upon these other things that would qualify as sand? Here's the first one. I, I would say that the first one would be emotional highs of a speaker a preacher or a band that leaves us with this moving religious experience. So just the, these emotional highs of uh, maybe a, a preacher you love or a band that you really enjoy listening to, it leaves us with this just, we come away going, wow, that was a great experience. And I, and I want to just give you some the passages that relate to each one of these. Here I would think of 1 Corinthians 2. You don't have to turn there, but listen. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power. So that. Why? Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Listen. We can build our lives on these religious experiences. 
in these moments and these, these great crescendos of, of preaching or these great crescendos of, of, of a song and, and come away and go, man, that was a wonderful religious experience. And what happens when that experience dies and so does our faith, so does our willingness to live for the Lord. Because it's not built on the Lord, it's not built on the truth, it's not built on obeying Him, it's built on some experience. It's built on how somebody can get us all amped up for Him, or how some song can get us amped up to want to raise our hands or rejoice or do whatever. And Paul says, listen, I didn't come to you trying to wow you with my lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come with these great words of wisdom and trying to impress you and trying to amp you up. No, I came and simply proclaimed the power of God. Why? Because I didn't want your faith to rest in that experience. I didn't want your faith to rest in how good of a preacher I was or in how great of a song that was. I wanted your faith to rest in the power of God Almighty, not in me. So sand would be emotional highs of a preacher of song the rock is in the power of god second the sand would be our own works our deeds our righteousness we've talked frequently about this that, that those who would depend on and build their life on what they've done or what they've said right second uh, timothy 1 9 would be your cross reference there it says god saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in christ jesus before the ages began so our works, deeds, our own righteousness is sand. The third category that I would say is sand that we sometimes build our lives upon would be philosophy and the, the ideas of man. That we would hear teachings. We would come across a New York Times best, bestseller. We would sit under a professor in our freshman year of, of college or university and be impressed. Whoa, wow, the ideas, the thought. Wow, he's so brilliant philosophies well first corinthians 1 20 and 21 paul asks this he says where is the one who is wise where is the scribe where is the debater of this age has not god made foolish the wisdom of the world for since the wisdom of god the world did not or, or sorry for in the wisdom of god the world did not know god through wisdom it pleased god through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe man's wisdom is limited it's weak it's lacking. The wisdom of God is profound, true, stable, secure. The philosophies of ideas and the philosophy and ideas of men change. They shift. Those of you who are old enough to have seen decades go, come and go, you look back and you see that, don't you? You look back and you see how the philosophies of men have changed over the different eras, the different generations. You've seen how what is popular then is not popular now. You've seen narratives change. You've seen trends come and go. The philosophy and ideas of man are shifting sand. Fourth, our own opinions. I'm just going to live according to my opinion. It says this, but I don't think. I think this. You think that. I'm just going to build my life on my own opinion. My own opinion is shifting sand. My own, own opinion is not stable ground. Proverbs 28, 26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. You trust your own opinion? You trust in your own mind, your own thoughts? Be careful. It's sand. Fifth, be cultural trends. We've talked about this multiple times. No need to go back there today. But if you're building 
your life on cultural trends, you need to know that is shifting sand. If you want to see the depravity and the error of culture, just look at Romans chapter 1. You can start reading verse 21, read down to the end of the chapter, verse 32. And you see this progression. It's a description of a culture, is what it is. The culture that, that seeks after its own thoughts, his own ways, and God gives man over to his own thoughts, own desires. God's wrath is seen in giving man what he wants. It's essentially what's happened in our culture. That what we want is being given to us. And culture continues to grow worse and worse and worse. Basing your life on cultural trends is shifting sand. Now, here's what you need to understand. Is that sand can appear solid, can't it? Sand can, can seem stable. It can be so dried and weathered that you walk out and you see something hard that seems like it would be solid and stable, but it's not. When is it shown not to be stable? When the storms come, when rain comes, it shows that it is not stable. Each of the things that we just referenced, all five of those things, they may appear stable. You may sit there today and go, well, I don't know if you're right on that. Well, listen, you need to know that there will be a day that comes that you will be shown that that is sand. It will get jerked out from under you. You will fall. You will stumble because it's sand. In Ezekiel 13, God, God makes reference to the false prophets. This is verse uh, 10 to 14, I think it is. But he, call, he talks to the false prophets, and in, in calling out the false prophets, he describes them as this wall that they just whitewashed and made it look really nice. And he says, I'm going to bring a flood. I'm going to bring a torrent, a rain, and I'm going to destroy that wall and just wash it off, and I'm going to expose the foundation. I'm going to show you what's truly at the bottom of that wall. There will be a day when those things that you build your life upon that are sand, that they will be revealed. It will be revealed to be faulty. It will be revealed to be unsecure. But rest assured this. There is also day after day after day after day after day until the end of your life. That if you're building your life on the rock of Christ, that it is shown that he is shown to be secure as well. Because in every moment that the storms of life come, every moment that you walk through, you're standing on solid ground. The solid rock of Christ is shown to be stable not because it falls, not because it comes out from under you, not because it's unstable, but because it is secure, it is stable, and you stand secure upon Him. You see, that's the, the passage that, that Arthur read earlier from Isaiah 28, verses 14 to 19. Is a passage that describes who as the solid rock? Jesus. Jesus is that solid rock. He is the one that God said, I am establishing, I am sending a cornerstone who is a sure foundation. And it ends that, that statement of prophecy. He ends it by saying what? That the one who believes in him will not be in haste. It will not be a waste if you believe upon him. Why? Because the solid rock of Christ endures. He is secure. He is worth you building your life upon. Your house built upon Christ will not fall. It stands. It stands. The, the parallel passage to this where in, in Matthew 7, if you, if you looked in Luke, you don't have to flip over there, but if you just note the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, 
verses uh, 49 to, what is it, 46 to 49. Uh, so the parallel passage there, what we read is interesting because it's a little more vivid in how Jesus describes this. He says that the wise man dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. He dug deep. He wasn't satisfied with just looking and go, well, this seems kind of solid. It seems stable. So I'm just going to build right here. No, the wise man digs deep. He looks and he, he hits it with a pick and, and gets a shovel and starts digging. And he puts in the work to dig deep to find out what is truly solid. He doesn't settle with what appears to be solid, but he digs down to what truly is rock solid. And the problem is so many of in our day, they're just, you're, you're just satisfied with what appears to be solid. You get satisfied with what appears to be okay, what appears worthy of building your life upon. Instead of digging down deep and founding your life on the rock that is Christ, are you content with building your house on sands of culture, on the sands of men? Or are you building your life upon the rock of Christ? This leads to our third implication, our third gleaning from this passage. Is that the one whose foundation is Jesus will weather the storms of life. The one whose foundation is Jesus will weather the storms of life. And I talked about, remember we started looking at this this morning. We pointed out the similarities and the differences. And we said that Jesus is primarily looking and pointing out the differences to teach us, right? What was, there's one similarity that's important for us to hit here. What is the similarity that's important for us to understand? What comes upon both houses? Storms, right? Storms come upon both. Storms come upon both men. There is no one who is immune to the trials of life. No one. So everyone sitting in here, storms come upon all of our lives. The, the Christian is just as likely to face great difficulty in trials. Tragedy can just as quickly come upon my home as my neighbor's home. The storms come upon all of us. The reality is some of you are sitting here this morning, and you would say, they're not coming, they're here. They are here. I'm, I'm living through a storm right now. I'm living through a, a financial crisis, or I'm living through a health crisis. I'm living through intense brokenness in my home. I'm, I'm living through great regret and great sorrow and great grief the physical trials and ailments the the despair the emotional hurt that i'm experiencing right now is very real and i am in the midst of a storm listen in the midst of the storm know that if you're standing on christ you're standing on solid ground and in the midst of storm of the storm as you stand upon christ continue to walk in christ obeying christ I was reminded this week of, in our daily readings, those of you who are doing the, the read through the Bible, I was reminded this week in reading through, and we came to 1 Samuel 24, the passage about David and Saul and the interchange. You know, David has been anointed as king already, but Saul is still serving as king. And so there comes a point where, where Saul is in anger and he's pursuing David. He's trying to kill him. He's hunting him down. He's got his armies coming after him. And David is in hiding. He's running. He's fleeing from Saul. And you, you remember 
In this passage in particular that David is in the, the cave. Do you remember this? And Saul comes in. It's a great moment in, in Scripture, a very, very clear moment in Scripture where it says Saul comes in to relieve himself. And David has the opportunity, right, in that moment to kill Saul. And his men are even saying, hey, this is it. God's giving him into your hands. Kill him. And what does David do? He just cuts off the corner of his robe and saves it. And then after Saul gets done and goes out, David comes out and says, hey, look, over here. Yeah, part of your robe. Could have killed you, but I didn't. And Saul's humble. Saul's blown away. And why would David do that? Well, it's because David trusted the, the plan and the purpose, the promise, the providence of God. David trusted those things. He was not just to hear. He didn't just hear about it. He truly trusted. He was walking in obedience to the things that God told him to do. And because of that, it enabled him to have great patience to endure some serious trials and storms in his life. Right? Or, or we're reminded even of, of Paul, right? Our, our readings took us through Acts 16 as well, where Paul and Silas began and found the, the Philippian church. Do you remember that? Where they're dragged out into the street, they're stripped naked, they're beaten, they're humiliated, and they're thrown in prison in the middle of Philippi, doing, walking in obedience to the Lord. They're there because they obeyed the Lord. And this happens. A storm. It's a trial. This is something that would definitely qualify as a storm. Listen, in that moment, in that moment, if, if, if you're building your life on any kind of cultural trend, if you're building your life on the opinions of man, if you're building your life on some kind of religious experience, in that moment when you're stripped down naked, beaten, and thrown out in the square of Somerset, Kentucky, and then thrown in prison, if you're building your life on any of those sands, this gone. At least it is for me. I'm going to be like, I'm out of here. I'm not building my life on those things. But Paul's building his life on Christ. He's walking in obedience to Christ. He's trusting Christ. Paul in that moment trusts what? He trusts the, the promises, the purposes, the plans, the providence of God. And because he trusts all those, Paul has great perseverance and he perseveres through the storm. He and Silas are singing, they're worshiping, they're praising God in the midst of the storm and the, the gates open, the doors open and they just keep praising the Lord and the jailer, you, some of you remember the story, the jailer is about ready to kill himself, he's going, oh my goodness, they're all gone and Paul says, hey no, we're in here. Ultimately, it results in the jailer coming to faith in Christ. The storms came upon Paul, the storms came upon Saul, the storms come upon all of us, all of us. And it exposes what our foundation is. Paul and Saul, or Paul and David, both walked right through those storms. They both persevered with great patience and great faith through those storms, not because of who they were and not because of some sandy foundation they were on, but because of who they trusted. It's because their faith was in Christ, their faith was in God. It was looking forward in David's instance, forward to the Messiah. Paul looking backward to the Messiah. Because their faith was in God, their faith was in Christ, it was a sure foundation that they were able to walk and stand through the storms. The storms expose our foundation. So listen, friend, I, I don't care how put together you look today. It doesn't really matter how many sermons you hear how many Sunday school lessons you sit through or 
how many podcasts you tune into. If you're only a hearer and you listen to those things, you consume them, but yet you continue to build your life on some kind of status, this identity that you've manufactured on your social media platform of choice, or you continue to build your identity on the status you have at work because of your position, or how much money you've earned, who your spouse is, who your boyfriend is, who your girlfriend is, how much success you have on the ball field, on the course, those things will be exposed. The, the teaching of Christ is quite clear that the storms and trials of life will expose that all of that is sand, that you're not building your life on the rock that is Christ. What are you building your life on? Are you walking in obedience to Christ or are you walking in obedience to something or someone else? As we close our time this morning, we close the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus finishes his sermon. It's complete. People have heard incredible teaching and we hear the response. Jesus finished these sayings and the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. This is something we, we hear over and over again. In, in the gospel accounts, we hear in, in Matthew 13, 54, 12, 33, Mark 1, 22, 6, 2, 11, 18, Luke 4, 32, various places in John, we hear time and time again that people hear Jesus, they see Jesus, and they're amazed. They're astonished at him. And here, particularly, it says that they are astonished at his teaching. They're astonished at his teaching. Why? Well, first, think about the, the content. Why are they astonished at his teaching? One, think about the content of it. Think about the content. He flips the meaning of blessed upside down. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when you just come through, and you can just trace right through here with me if you want, but in chapter 5, when we start looking at the Sermon on the Mount, he completely and radically flips the meaning of what it means to be blessed upside down. And then right after that, he, he calls his disciples to do more than just live life, just to get through life, just to survive. He calls us to much more than that. Instead, we're to live our life in a way that influences and impacts the world around us as salt and light impact the world around us. And then he reveals the, the greater and deeper meaning of the law. These people who have built their life around the law in so many ways, and they're, they're trying to obey, and they're trying to, 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 to figure out all the intricacies of the law. And, and Jesus comes and he says, listen, I'm not destroying that, but let me teach you what it truly means. Let me give you the greater and deeper meaning of the law, the intent of the law, the heart of the law. He goes on to destroy vain religiosity, and he calls for this true, genuine piety. It's not just religious deeds. It's not just looking religious, but it's truly pursuing holiness. It's truly pursuing the things of the Lord, truly trying to live in a way that glorifies and exalts God. Right after that, he confronts our worldliness. He confronts the idea that we would accumulate all the stuff and that we would treasure stuff and that we would serve stuff, that we would just accumulate wealth and serve wealth and do whatever it takes to, to have a big portfolio or a big wallet. And instead he says, don't seek after all that, but seek after the things of heaven. Set your gaze on the things of the Lord. He goes on, he continues to, to confront us, and he confronts us and warns us of four common dangers that we've talked about most recently. 
All of these are dangers that we go, wow, we tend to ignore them or we tend to push them aside and tend to go, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. But it is a big deal. And it has eternal consequences in our lives and the lives of those around us. And Christ calls us to consider and to be warned and to pursue him and to pursue the narrow way. His teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is challenging. His teaching on the Sermon on the Mount or in the Sermon on the Mount is hard. It is a lofty standard. He calls his disciples to live a life that is truly beyond our capability. We look at the Sermon on the Mount. I, I, I don't know about you, but if you just went back this afternoon, if you haven't already done this, if you just went back and said, okay, we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, let's just, I'm just going to read, I'm going to sit down and read the Sermon on the Mount in one setting. And I'll think about all that we know about it and all that we've talked about and what it means. And you just read it. I think you get to the end and you just shake your head and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can't do it. I can't do it. I just can't. I mean, can you? I'm just speaking very honestly. I, if I do that, I can't do it. If I just read it, I come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and say, Lord, I'm a wreck. <laughs> but thanks be to God that when I look and I'm confronted with my sinfulness and I'm confronted with the fact that I can't do all of this perfectly, that I can't be exactly who I need to be to earn and to merit my salvation, thanks be to God that I look and I hear that the teaching is from the one who lived perfectly, who was tempted in every way and was yet without sin. I'm tempted, or I'm, I'm reminded that I'm, I'm serving, I'm listening to, and I'm sitting under the teaching, and I'm walking in obedience to the one who is the great high priest, the one who has entered into the most holy place and who has torn away the curtain and who has given us access. Why? Because he lived in perfect obedience to the law to the Father. I, I live and I, I, I live in light of the one who did what I cannot do, who lived the way that I cannot live. I read the Sermon on the Mount and I hear it and I shake my head and I'm astonished. I'm astonished at the teaching and I'm astonished at the Savior who taught the teaching. I'm astonished at the one who was perfect and perfectly lived all this out. I'm astonished at the one who did that and then imputes his righteousness on me, who gives me his righteousness, the divine exchange, that he would take my sin upon himself on the cross and give me his righteousness <laughs> not because anything I've earned not because anything I said hey I'm going to give you this you give me that no friend the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary don't ever forget that we wholly trust and need Christ. They were astonished at the content of his teaching. But what else were they astonished at? Look at what it says in verse 29. 
for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You might remember, this came up several times in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus teaches, you remember he said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. When, when Jesus is, is doing this, he, he's pointing out, he makes clear, and they're astonished at the fact that his teaching is not based on some type of authority from someone who has taught before. His teaching is not based on some authority that's derived from an office he held or from a position he held or from an education he had received. That's not where Jesus derives his authority. No, Jesus' authority is an inherent authority. It is authority in who he is. The position, I mean, the, the authority he possessed and taught from was based in who he was and who he is. That is the authority that Christ has. And so he does not teach as though he's a scribe. He does not say, you've heard it said, or I studied this person. You see, the scribes teach from that authority. I teach from that authority. That I teach and I preach and I come here week in and week out and say the word of God says... I don't come to you and teach based on my own authority. Christ is the authority. And so Christ says, I say to you. <laughs> I say to you. I don't need anyone to validate that. I don't need anyone to back it up because I am the word made flesh. That's who he is. And so he teaches with this inherent authority to say I tell you this and what I tell you goes because I am God incarnate hear my words but don't merely hear them do them do them so Jesus gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and we today come to the end of our study of the Sermon on the Mount and the choice is clear. Will you hear and obey? Will you hear and go about your way? Will you be wise? Or will you walk as a fool? Will you submit your life to Christ? Or strive in your own weakness and sinfulness? To try to do what you can't do. I hope and I pray that as you go home today, if you're a, a believer, I, I hope and pray that, that you sit back and you, like the disciples, were, you just sit back and you're astonished at his teaching, but you're more astonished at the Savior who taught it. If you're a, here, you're an unbeliever, I hope that you hear all this and you realize this isn't some type of ethical, moral teaching that we do to earn salvation because the reality is that we can't do that. We can't. You're never going to be able to do enough or to obey enough to meet God's holy standard. Just not. We don't have a sin eraser in our lives. There's no capability for that.
And so I hope, unbeliever, that you would come to the end of the Sermon on the Mountain and realize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for sin, the sins of his people, who rose from the grave three days later, ascended unto heaven where he reigns and intercedes on behalf of his people. And I hope you would see that that Jesus, the Jesus that scriptures testify of, is your only hope. There's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. No other one. And I hope that you would be confronted with that today. And that you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and follow him as Lord. Scriptures have given us a great promise. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. I pray that you would do that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for this time that you've afforded for us to be able to come and to sing your praises, to sit under your word, to pray together, to fellowship together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this sermon, the teachings, the truths, and many of them very hard. I know over the past year it's been some difficult days, difficult things that we needed to hear. God, I thank you for the way you've used your word in our lives over the last year, the way you've conformed us be who you are, who you want us to be. Thank you for shaping us, sanctifying us, God, by your word, even when that's been hard. And we thank you for that. God, I pray that as we leave this place, that God, today we would walk in obedience to you, that we would have a longing to live truly with you as our Lord that we would have a longing to walk in personal holiness, not for our own glory, but, God, for your glory. And, God, I pray that for our our friends here today who are unbelievers, they're not following you, God, I pray that you would work in their life, that that would begin by what Paul described as obedience of faith, that they would turn to you, that they would submit to the call to trust in you by trusting in you. God, we commit this time to you as we sing of the firm foundation that is Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand, let's sing.